People are ugly and selfish and unlovable. Love them anyway. When you do a kind deed, you may get accused of ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. What you build up might one day get torn down. Build it up anyway. When you tell the person the truth, they might not believe it or accept it, but tell the truth anyway. The person you help to heal will one day get sick from something else, but hey, help bring healing anyway. The peacemaking you negotiate might not last. Make peace anyway. Your contribution to God and to your church might never get recognized on earth. Give it anyway. You might get attacked by the person you're trying to help. Help them anyway. When you sacrifice for your kids, you'll seldom get the appreciation you deserve. Sacrifice anyway. The good you do today will probably be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. And here's the reason why. How we live our lives is between us and God. It has never been about you and them anyway. This is how the Apostle Paul begins chapter 2. He wants the church in Philippi to live in harmony, to love one another. But his reason has little to do with their own relationships with each other. One church member getting along with the other is really not the point. It's not about us anyway. It's about our calling from God. See, love between Christians flows from Jesus' love for us. How we live should be a reflection of our loyalty to Christ, not necessarily our feelings toward one another. This is how Paul begins chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. And of course, all that Paul mentions is found in Christ in abundance. In Jesus, the shells are stocked. Think about it. We have God's witness. He's got our back. He's shoulder to shoulder with us. He's our comforter. He's always there. He never leaves us. We also have this loving comfort that he gives us. He knows our needs as an attentive to us. There's the fellowship of the Spirit, how we enjoy this, the overwhelming presence, awareness of God's presence in our lives. There's affection and mercy. This oozes from the heart that has received the same from Christ. See, all this and more flows from God to us in Christ. A Christian's joy comes not from his external circumstances, but from the work of God in his heart. The comforts of Christ are not situational, they're spiritual. And since God is at work in these Philippians and in us, Paul encourages their church and our church to act a certain way, to fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. See, Paul gives us a charge. He challenges the reasons for our gathering. He wants the church to rally not around dynamic pastors or cool music or likable people or innovative programs or any of the other reasons that Christians today give for joining and being part of a church family. Rather, 
Paul wants our connection with each other to stem from our connection with Christ. He challenges us. May all that we've experienced in Jesus color and shape our fellowship with one another. And notice what that includes. First, be like-minded. And yet we ask ourselves, how in the world can we be like-minded? Look at us. We come from diverse backgrounds, different ethnic identities, different occupations, different economic means. How can people who look so different end up being like-minded? And when you read the church growth literature today, you realize that most of the leading thinkers have given up on this idea of diverse congregations. Oh, that's too difficult. There are Christian sociologists today who teach what's called the homogeneous principle. The idea being that birds of the feather flock together. Supposedly, churches grow larger by targeting folks with similar likes, the same age range, the same race, the same salary, the same socioeconomic status. Only then can a church be like-minded. As a matter of fact, just look at our own community. What we see supports this notion so often. We've got growing African-American churches and growing Hispanic churches and growing Caucasian churches. And 50 years after our schools were integrated, our churches largely remained segregated. I think that's sad. So much for the church being society's leading change agent. Did you know that Sunday at 11 a.m. continues to be the most segregated hour of the week? I agree, it might be easier to forge a like-mindedness among folks with the same likes, but that doesn't make it biblical. Paul doesn't appeal to the same age, to the same race, to the same salary, to the same status. He says, having the same love, that's what we need to have. Being of one accord, of one mind. Can't we see that God has a greater ambition for the church than just being a group of friends that like to hang out together? We have been called by God to show the lost world around us the unifying power of the gospel. That's a huge calling. What if there was one place in our community where black people and white people, poor people and rich people, Spanish-speaking people and English-speaking people could truly come together and get along and work together? Would it make a difference in our fragmented world? I think it would. I think it would get people's attention, breed hope and goodwill, even be a force for peace. But this takes gospel-oriented people, folks who will prioritize the good of the gospel over their own good. I hope we're those kind of people. Are we committed to sharing the same love, not just the same likes? Willing to live in one accord even if it's not what we all can afford? Determined to be people of one mind instead of just one kind? You see, the Philippians were the first church to be planted on the European continent. And Paul knew that they had the potential of doing something truly revolutionary. The Christians in Philippi were being called by God to bridge the gap, to carry the gospel from Asia to Europe, from east to west, from oriental culture into Hellenistic culture. 
But it would take people who were willing to live out the gospel in their everyday lives and in the relationships they had with the people around them. And I dare say the Lord in heaven is presenting us with a similar challenge. Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain is also positioned to bridge diverse groups for the sake of the gospel. But to do so, we first have to be gospel-oriented people. We have to be committed to not only believing the gospel, but to embodying its implications in our lives. And verse 3 tells us what that looks like. Paul writes, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. See, here's what characterizes healthy, gospel-oriented living. People adopt an other-centered focus. They look out for the other guy's interests, not just their own. This begins with humility. As Paul puts it, lowliness of mind. That's a healthy, objective view of ourselves. See, humility isn't self-deprecation. It's not some deliberate put-down. You know, some people talk down about themselves for fear of pride. Other people like to bash themselves so other people will build them up. Sort of a backdoor way of soliciting praise. Real humility, though, is seeing myself as I truly am. I'm made in God's image. I've been blessed with God's gifts. I'm not the most talented person in the world, but I've been equipped enough to do what God has called me to do. Most important, real humility realizes that up against God's glory, I am an inadequate soul in need of his sufficiency. See, we all desire joy in our lives, but a Christian realizes that the joy he wants doesn't start with him. Joy begins when I look past me and see someone else in need. Once a man had a vision of hell. He saw a banquet table filled with fruits and vegetables and meats and breads, a feast fit for a king. But everyone around the table was malnourished and emaciated. He wondered why they didn't eat anything. That's when he noticed their 10-foot forks. They couldn't get a fork full of food from the table to their mouth. It was impossible. Their forks were too long. Well, soon the man was whisked away to heaven where he saw the same banquet table, the same 10-foot forks. But this time, the people around the table were full. They were healthy and happy. And here was the difference. In heaven, rather than feed yourself, everyone uses their fork to feed the person across the table. Everyone shares. In hell and in this world, it's every man for himself, but not so in God's kingdom. And that shouldn't be the case in his church. A church is a place where people love and think of each other, not just themselves. You remember the encounter at the pool of Bethesda between Jesus and the lame man? The belief was that whenever the water stirred, it was an angel who would heal the first person into the pool. Of course, this made healing impossible for the lame man, for everyone else was able to jockey and push and sort of align themselves so that they had a chance at first in. But when Jesus came that day... (coughs) He passed the pool of competition. And he said to the lonely lame man, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. 
And this is true of Jesus today. When Jesus appears, his love makes the waters of competition irrelevant. For it's no longer about who's first in. Who can beat out the other guy? In the church, it's about help for everyone. Even the last and the least take up their beds and walk. Here in verses 1 through 4, Paul issues a charge to the church. Now in verses 5 through 11, he follows it up with an example. And this is what Jesus did. A charge, then an example. You remember a few days before Jesus' final visit to Jerusalem, his disciples got into a heated argument. They were debating over which one of them was greatest in God's kingdom. Can you imagine? Well, in Matthew 20, verse 26, Jesus charges them. He says, whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. The problem, though, is that the master's teaching that day fell on deaf ears, fell on hard hearts. That is until a few days later. This time, they're in an upper room. They're just hours before Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. The master and his men are celebrating the feast of Passover, but they're doing it with dirty, grimy feet. Jesus wanted to see if any of his followers had taken heed to his teaching a few days earlier and were willing to stoop down and humble themselves and serve one another. But no one was willing. And that's when an amazing event took place, one that no doubt stunned the angels in heaven. For the king of glory, the creator of all things, left that table grabbed a bowl and a towel, filled that bowl with water, took that towel, and washed his disciples' feet. And that's when Jesus told them, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Jesus had given them a charge that he followed up with an example. It was a microcosm of his mission. And this is what Paul does here. He charges the church to be like-minded, of the same love, of one accord, of one mind. And then he explains to us what that mind or that attitude looks like. He gives us an example. Verse 5. Let this mind, literally this frame of mind, this attitude, be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Now understand, Jesus was no wannabe God, no shadow God, no God with a little g. Jesus wasn't someone striving to become God. He was God in every sense. From eternity past, Jesus was God's peer, his equal I like J.B. Phillips' translation of verse 5. <coughs> he writes, For he who had always been God by nature did not cling to his privileges as God's equal, but stripped himself of every advantage. Jesus was God, but he stripped himself of the advantages of being God. He became fully human. The Greek word translated made in verse 7, it means emptied. When Jesus became a man, he didn't stop being God. He was fully God. But he laid aside, he emptied himself of the privileges and clout of being God. He emptied himself of any benefit his deity might bring him. 
He lived a truly human life. He added humanity to his deity. This meant that when Jesus wanted to travel from the Sea of Galilee to Jerusalem, rather than call a fiery chariot, rather than uh, jump up into the air and act like Superman and fly to 75 miles, all the things he could have done, instead he walked the dusty roads. He climbed the rocky terrain. There were no shortcuts for the Savior. Before he chose his 12 disciples, Jesus could have called for a heavenly vision. He could have cast supernatural lots. Instead, he spent the night before in prayer, seeking God to guide him. He walked by faith, just like we do. Even on the cross, there was no angel to assist him, no water from the rock to quench his thirst, no healing for the healer's wounds. Jesus died like other crucified men. In Christ, God nailed himself to our limitations and to our plight. He stayed the course to the bitter end. He paid sin's tax without taking any special deductions. Jesus refused to use his deity to make his way any easier or his load any lighter. He lived the way he asks us to live, always dependent on the power of God's spirit. See, Jesus subjected himself to all our vulnerabilities He tangled with our enemies and did it on our turf. And this is why today Jesus has real heartfelt empathy for you and me. Again, in verse 7, Paul tells us Jesus made himself of no reputation. When Jesus came to earth, he came not only to live as one of us, but the least of us. Rather than enjoy the high life, he lived a life of sacrifice. Understand, Jesus didn't throw his weight around to get his way. He didn't insist on special treatment. He didn't expect to walk the red carpet. Mary could have delivered her baby boy in the finest hospital, but Jesus was born in a barn. There was no first class for Jesus. If he'd boarded an airplane, he would have flown coach. Imagine the most holy child, heaven's prince, was the most down-to-earth person who ever walked our planet. He took the humble road. And this is the way Jesus wants you and I to live our lives among each other, humbly and unpretentious and simple and unassuming. Jesus never used force or manipulation or intimidation to get his way. And this is how he wants us to roll, with humility. What about you? Are you always pressing and pushing your agenda? Do you intimidate or manipulate to get what you want? This past week, I was challenged by a confession made by a man named Robert Rains. He writes this, Lord, I size up other people in terms of what they can do for me, how they can further my program, feed my ego, satisfy my needs, give me strategic advantage. I exploit people ostensibly for your sake, but really for my own sake. Lord, I turn to you to get the inside track and obtain special favors, your direction for my schemes, your power for my projects, your sanction for my ambitions, your blank checks for whatever I want. Here's the truth. You and I, we can even make our relationship with God mainly about me. We can. We forget that joy comes when it's all about him. But we're also told in verse 7, Jesus took the form of a bondservant. 
Jesus was a servant by choice. He served other people because it was his joy to do so, not because it was his job. Serving others brought him great joy. Famous composer Leonard Bernstein was once asked, what's the most difficult instrument to play in the orchestra? He replied, second fiddle. Anybody can be first violin. It takes humility to play second fiddle. Which also reminds me, what is the late composer Leonard Bernstein doing today? He's decomposing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No charge for that. Just thought I'd throw that, just thought I'd throw that right in. It's interesting when Jesus set out to change the world, he didn't use political persuasion or computer technology or nuclear energy or genetic engineering. Jesus changed the world with a bowl and a towel. He washed feet. And in doing so, he turned the world's ideas of success topsy-turvy. Up until that moment, everyone saw success as an upward trajectory. But through Jesus' example, for the first time, men saw how you can descend into greatness. People who think life owes them seldom experience joy. Real joy comes when we stop worrying about ourselves and start caring about God and other people. See, joy is counterintuitive. You get it when you give it. A man once asked Lauren Sandy, former president of the Navigators, he said, how do you know when you have a servant-like attitude? Lauren Sandy had a wise reply. He, he answered, by how you act when you're treated like one. Oh, we all like serving God when it makes us feel good or it makes us look good, but that's not a true servant's heart. Ruth Calkin writes, You know, Lord, how I serve you with great emotional fervor in the limelight, how I effervesce when I promote a fellowship group. You see my genuine enthusiasm to teach a Bible study, but how would I react if you pointed to a basin of water and asked me to wash the callous feet of a bent and wrinkled old man day after day, month after month, in a room where nobody saw and nobody knew? When my grandpa finally couldn't take care of himself, my dad took him into his home, bathed him, got him to and from the bathroom. He served him. My dad was like Jesus to my grandpa. Listen carefully. We are never more like Jesus than when we stoop to serve when nobody is looking. Then Paul says of Jesus in verse 7, and coming in the likeness of men, you see, Jesus became a man. He became human so that we could, so that he could experience man's dilemma and so that we could be inspired by him, so that we could learn to trust him. Jesus became a man so that we could rally around, all men could rally around him. I got a top 10 list. I know you guys love these things. Brought it with me today. Got a top 10 list. The top 10 ways life would be different if the next United States president was a dog. Got it? Everybody got it? All right. Number 10, the Oval Office would have a doggy door. Number nine, all national parks would have dog runs. Number eight, leashes would be outlawed. Number seven, 
The new American health care plan would include coverage for flea collars and heartworm prevention. Number six, birth control would include more options than spay and neuter. Number five, tax breaks for convertibles. Number four, year-round open hunting season on cats. Some of you didn't like that, I know. Number three, the Washington Monument would be turned into a 100-story fire hydrant. Number two, doggy biscuits would become tax-deductible. And number one, seat belts would be reconfigured so that you could drive with your head hanging out of the window like that. Obviously, all dogs in America would rally around a canine president, would they not? Sure. But this is why Jesus came to earth as a human, so that all humans would rally around him. He became a man to ensure us that he understands and feels our plight. As one of us, he cares deeply for our needs. He wants us to know that we can trust him. Reminds me of the nine-year-old little boy. He was sitting at his desk at school. Suddenly, a stream of water pooled up between his feet. He had tried to hold it. But he just couldn't. The little boy had wet his pants. And he knew what was about to happen. Oh, he knew. As soon as that puddle of pee was discovered, his life was going to be over. I mean, the boys would be relentless in their humiliation. The girls would never speak to him again. I mean, the little guy thought, in five minutes, I'm going to be dead meat. He prayed, God, quick, it's an emergency. Help me. That's when a classmate, her name was Susie, she came to the rescue. She had a goldfish bowl full of water in her hand when she noticed what had happened. She walked over to little Bobby. She stumbled a bit, and she spilt the water in his lap. Bobby jumped up, pretending to be angry, but on the inside, he was singing the hallelujah chorus. (laughs) Instantly, the situation changed. Rather than be the object of ridicule, he was now sympathy's recipient. Everyone was mad at Susie for being so clumsy. While little Bobby was being handed paper towels and they were helping him dry off. Everyone let him know how sorry they were that Susie had been such a klutz. Well, at the end of the day, Bobby and Susie, they were together waiting for the bus. Bobby walked over and he whispered, you did that on purpose, didn't you? Susie whispered back, I wet my pants once too. And with all the reverence that I can muster, let me say, Jesus also wet his pants. He did. He he sold a diaper. He blew his nose. His feet got sore. His back ached. He came in our likeness so that he could understand and identify with the people that he would die to save and rise to lead. Now that he shared our plight, we know he cares. And then Paul adds to Jesus' resume in verse 8, being found in appearance as a man. Notice, Jesus was a man. Jesus wasn't just human. In becoming human, God took a Y chromosome. He had a manly appearance. It was God's design for Jesus to have hairy legs. Stubble on his face, a husky voice, an 11th toe. Jesus was son of God, not daughter of God. On Father's Day, let me say, 
There is one more reason why men should follow Jesus. He is the man that all men were meant to be. Jesus was not just human, but male. And notice his most masculine act. Verse 8 tells us, he humbled himself. Do you realize that real men humbled themselves? Jonathan Last is an accomplished author and a brand new father. Recently, he wrote an article entitled A Dad's Life in which he discusses how being a dad will humble a man. He recalls being in the process of changing a diaper himself when all of a sudden his son decided to spray pee all over the bookcase. He says his quick reflexes led him to cup his hands and place them over his boy's manhood and minimize the damage. He wrote, The dismantling of my dignity took three weeks, more or less. Later in the article, he writes, as only a dad can, he says, the primary effect of children is to take things from you. It starts with sleep, time, and dignity, and expands over the years to include serenity, sanity, and a lot of money. I'm not complaining, just observing. It's what they do. This is why it takes sacrifice and a servant's attitude to be a good dad. You have to die to your own desires. And you have to live for the good of others. And this is what Jesus did. But there's a difference. You see, a dad gets humbled by his kids. He has no choice. It's what they do. But notice in verse 8, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He humbled himself. No one humbled Jesus not Herod, not Pilate, not the high priest, not the soldier who applied the scourging or who hammered in the nails. Jesus humbled himself. He obeyed the Father's will, even to the point of the cross. Realize, the crucifixion of Jesus was history's most courageous moment. The strength of Jesus had been on display for centuries. You read the Old Testament carefully, and you'll discover that, this, that Jesus was the voice in the burning bush, on fire yet not consumed. Jesus threw down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus was the captain of the Lord's army before whom General Joshua bowed. Isaiah called Jesus Emmanuel, the messenger who killed 185,000 Assyrians in a single night. Over and over, the pre-incarnate Christ flexed his muscle. Even on earth, Jesus showed unparalleled courage. You remember the day in Nazareth when he passed through an angry mob untouched. He threw the crooked priest from the temple with his bare hands. Jesus wasn't timid. He was a manly man. In fact, when Jesus returns to earth, he'll come as a mighty warrior. Revelation 19 pictures Jesus coming on a war, war horse, ready for battle. Pardon the lingo, but Jesus will bust chops, take names, and start breaking kneecaps. He's going to make war with sinners. Yes, he'll usher in an age of peace, but only after he kills off all his enemies. Yet here, when Paul spotlights Jesus' masculinity, he doesn't mention his strength or his resolve or even his bravery. He mentions his humility. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Real men humble themselves. 
They can throw a punch, but they can also pull a punch. They can step up or stand down depending on their orders. Jesus' greatest example of manliness, his greatest example was not the pain he will inflict, but the pain that he endured. He obeyed God. Even though it meant the torture of a Roman cross, our Lord Jesus did what was necessary to save us from our sin and to make this world a better place. And this is what it means to be like Jesus. We too should be obedient to the point of death, the death of our selfishness, the death of our own convenience, the death of our comforts and pleasures if necessary. To be like Jesus is to stop whining and bellyaching about the hand we've been dealt. We need to put our wishes on the back burner and start making life better for the people around us. A real man humbles himself and is a help to his wife and his kids and his church and his world. Men and women need to die to their selfishness and take up their cross. It was Spurgeon who said, every crown wearer in heaven was a cross bearer on earth. See, life is not just about my happiness. At times, life gets hard. Joy flies at half-mast. I've heard commitment defined as the willingness to be unhappy until we worked it out. In the end, joy is a byproduct of obeying God. For if you humble yourself like Jesus, God will exalt you with Jesus. Verse 9 tells us what follows the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, every single knee is going to bow to Jesus. Saints in heaven, men on earth, even the dead under the earth, Herod's knee and Pilate's knee and the high priest's knee and Genghis Khan's knee and Napoleon's knee and Hitler's knee and Stalin's knee and Kim Jong-il's knee and Obama's knee and even Donald Trump's knee are all going to bend in subjection to Jesus. In that day, they'll have no other choice. All other gods will have proven worthless. Money and sex and fame and power will be irrelevant Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, humanism, in fact, all the other isms will be unmasked as a farce. Every human tongue will confess and every human knee will bow in declaration that Jesus is Lord. What's surprising is that because of Jesus' humility, we can choose to bow today. We have a choice. He gives us that choice. When you think about it, why did God become a man? Why this incarnation? In the eternal halls of heaven, Jesus was always celebrated. Angels were at his beck and call in awe of his majesty. If all Jesus wanted was respect or worship or glory, he would have stayed in heaven. He had it all there. Why did Jesus humble himself? See, I believe he wanted to be loved. We could give him something. The angels couldn't. Could it be that the Almighty got tired of intimidating and wanted to inspire? 
that the Holy One wanted to reveal his heart, not just herald his judgment, that God not only wanted to be feared, but that he desired to be followed. And to capture our hearts, Jesus became subject to our hurts. Is there someone in your life that you love and that you wished they loved you? A disillusioned spouse or maybe an angry teenager or an estranged friend? You desire to build a bridge, instead there's only a high wall there? Could it be the problem is you? That you've been too busy demanding respect to earn it? You've laid down the law, but you've never stooped down to love? It's not God's invincibility that has drawn us to him. It's his vulnerability. Sometimes a dad becomes so right, he ends up wrong. A husband gets so demanding that his wife fears him, but no longer wants to follow him. A wife can get so cynical that she forgets the good her husband does and the effort that he makes. If you want to be loved, first try serving. That's what we learn from this chapter. A little humility goes a long way. So what if you're so right if you can't reach the people you love? For some of us, it's time to get off our high horse and take the low road like Jesus. Rather than draw a line in the sand, we need to pick up a cross. Let me close with an interesting story. 30 years ago, God called Saul Cruz to work among the poor and needy in Mexico City. Saul planted a church on the edge of a vast garbage dump. It was a rough start for a church. It's tough to get folks to come to worship by a mound of garbage. But the bigger obstacle was Saul himself. He was seen as distant and aloof from his own people. The people didn't trust him. That is until one fateful Sunday morning. A man barged into the worship service with news of leaking sewage. It was flowing into the streets, flooding the streets. Dozens of houses were being threatened, and the city services weren't responding. Well, immediately Saul and a local engineer, they went to work. They stopped the traffic. They started filling sandbags. And for the next 15 hours, Saul spearheaded the effort. At 3 o'clock the next morning, when the flow of sewage had finally been stopped, Saul walked back to the church, cold and filthy. Several of the ladies had warm water waiting so the workers could wash off the sludge. When Saul entered the building, he broke down and he cried. He said to the other co-workers, I'm sorry, but we need to pray. They all locked arms and everyone knelt. They thanked God for delivering their community. But God did something more than just save the town that day. He established Saul as the pastor and the leader. Never again was Saul seen as distant or aloof. Once you wear somebody's sewage, you're connected. You are now trusted. And this is why Jesus humbled himself. This is why he descended from unapproachable holiness and dove into our sewage. And this is why he calls on us to follow him. Why? Because hearts get won. Love gets felt. People get persuaded, not with muscle, but with humility. And here's how a church can turn its diversity into like-mindedness. When they emphasize this gospel, 
when we follow Jesus down this path of humility and emptiness and service and cross-bearing, that's when God will exalt us. That's when our lives in church will be filled with joy and ring out in praise. May the mind that was in Christ also be in us.